before we get to our show, here is a podcast we think you're going to love. If you like weird and strange history, then I have the podcast for you. My name is Brenda, and I'm the host of Horrifying History. Are you into the dark side of history? Horrifying History tells you about the side of history that people don't normally talk about. We talk about the tales of haunted places, infamous true crimes, cursed items, and unsolved mysteries, and then we look into the science and documentation to see where does the truth actually lie. Want to get spooky with us? Get your Horrifying History fix by subscribing to Horrifying History, which you can find on any major podcast provider. my goodness it's time for perhaps it's you your favorite unofficial unsolved mysteries rewatch podcast i'm liz and i'm samantha and somewhere out there is bd wong hi bd wong i assume you're listening thanks for listening yeah thanks for listening everyone i hope you're doing well here on this fine day i know that this becoming a bi-weekly podcast has been a terrible transition for you but a great transition for us it's been great for us honestly yeah um but i know it's been rough out there although should we tell people that we attempted to record in person and failed miserably (laughs) that's true we were you were supposed to be listening to a very special episode listeners and instead i'm at my house liz is at her house and we're recording on a monday (laughs) yeah we tried to record this weekend in person i had some sweets and treats and everything but I, I I think our sort of bootleg setup that we've been using doesn't work with current Windows updates. We may have discovered that the setup <laughs> we used for like, I don't know, four years never should have worked in the no. first place because we were using completely the wrong equipment. <laughs> we I'm not entirely sure that we've been, we were using these microphones this entire time or that we even have a podcast. This could all be a dream. Yeah, that's sort of what the impression I came along with is that none of this is real. I'm not even sure there is a Samantha. I might have made her up. And that my mom's going to be like, Samantha, you mean that mannequin you used to have? <laughs> there was never a person named Samantha, Liz. That was just a gigantic doll mannequin. And I'll be like, oh my goodness. I made it all up. Yeah. The, the mind is a dangerous web. <laughs> Why is nothing real? Because, yeah, Mac was, like, really trying to help us. And he's like, is this what you guys always did? And I was like, who knows? Like, honestly, it's been a year and a half since we set any of this up. I don't remember anything. But also, when you say it, it makes sense that it would not work. Well, we only have, I mean, certain. we only have, like, one chord of certain chords and things. So, (laughs) like, what you're looking at is what we used. And if it's not the right thing, I don't know what to say about it because we don't know what we're doing. Except that it just worked somehow. And now it doesn't because, I I don't know, technology caught up to us or something. I think they figured it out that we were just skating by by the seat of our pants and that we didn't know what we were doing. And they're like, actually, no. Actually, that's not okay you should um not have a podcast (laughs) is that what we're learning i don't know i would say that except that i liked this episode of unsolved mysteries and i was kind of like oh yeah that's why we do this me too every once in a while we get one of these (laughs) and you're like oh yeah i used to like this show 
Like, oh yeah, this is why we wanted to talk about this stuff. I remember. So I, I, maybe that isn't the message the universe had for us. Maybe the message the universe had for us was just buy another cord. I don't. <laughs> buy a new mixer, maybe. I'm not sure, but. It's not a great message. A little bit like the Beast of Bray Road's message being, I am better than you. Also, not a great message. <laughs> not a great message. Listen to our Patreon if you don't know what I'm talking about. But, um. Yeah, so we 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 did try to record in person again, and it was a big old failure. And so we just ate sandwiches and watched <laughs> relaxing videos of like fish swimming around in the ocean. We watched at least an hour of Turtle Paradise. Turtle Paradise, which didn't have that much turtles in it. It was literally just footage of like tropical coral reefs, and we were like, mm, "This is nice." Set to some soothing music. It was nice. I think we watched a couple loops of that <laughs> that video because <laughs> we are party animals. <laughs> um, I have an update, which is that we're going to be making a second issue of the Zine. Yes, so, I'm excited. If you were interested in contributing to the Zine, so far it looks like it's going to be even better than the last one. I don't even know how that's possible. But we have a cross-stitch pattern that has been submitted, and it fucking rules. And Rob from Our Strange Skies wrote us a thing about how everybody's sick of hearing about Roswell, <laughs> which is pretty great. And um, our friend Kara is working on a uh, tarot spread for us. So if you have anything you would like to contribute to the zine, we would love to have it. Submissions go to perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com and all contributors get a free issue of the zine. The sort of things you could contribute is really like anything that could be printed on paper, uh, a recipe, a word search, a comic, um, artwork, a paper doll. I like, I would say think of like things that would be in like a children's rainy day activity book. <laughs> And if you could make a version of that that, like, applies to the podcast, like a mask you cut out and wear, I don't know. Sure. Ooh, I like that idea. You know. Um, what about one of those paper dolls you cut out, like, the little outfits for? It has the little tabs in the corners. I would love that. If someone made a paper doll of me and you and Robbie Stacky, yes. Put little. You could put a little trench coat on us. <laughs> love. Yeah, Robert Stack could be there. Uh, there could be a shirtless Matthew McConaughey. I don't know. Oh, sign me up yeah um poems um really really your imagination is the only limit the last issue had fan art it had a recipe for mac and cheesies it had a crossword puzzle it had all kinds of cool stuff and yeah. you can still get an issue of that there's details on our website perhaps it's you.com but that is 15 dollars shipped to you and it's pretty cool so that is the only update I can really think of is that we are now collecting submissions for the new issue of the zine. I haven't picked a like cutoff date for that yet. So you'll probably have a couple months to get something together if you want to like work on a little project. You have yeah. some time. Yeah. Um, you know, it just has to be something perhaps it's you unsolved mysteries adjacent mm -hmm. somewhere somewhere in our weird universe that you think other the other rest of the five would enjoy people see universe is kind of vast <laughs> not gonna lie <laughs> yeah it touches a lot of bases huh yeah so you know there's a lot of little points of inspiration you could draw from too 
make a little a, a puppet some somehow yeah you you could be little characters there could be a little john taffer there could be a robert stack <laughs> you have to like cut out and paste to popsicle sticks and then yeah put a on little a little magic rock that would be so great you could do a little Ooh. puppet show I would love it if someone made one of those cootie catchers. You know that Ooh. thing you like fold and it, depending on what number, you like lift up the, yeah. <laughs> it has the different fortunes. If someone wants to design one of those, that would be awesome. I would love to have that in there. Those were the best. Do you think you could still fold one if you pressed? I'm not sure if uh, I could. I think I would have to look up how to do it. Yeah, I think I would too. And that's surprising because I probably made so many of those. <laughs> That or maybe like, oh, you know what I would love is a Mad Lib. If someone wants to make a perhaps it's you Mad Lib and send that over, that would be so good. (laughs) I'm into it. A choose your own adventure kind of story. Absolutely. That would be cool. Unsolved Mysteries related. I'm into that. People have sent photography. People have sent all sorts of interesting things. I think we're getting a sewing pattern. Like It's going to be lit. So I thought the last one was very good. I thought people had some really creative stuff, and it looks like this one's going to be even cooler. So I can't wait. The f- very creative people out there in the five, I have to say. What a creative group of listeners. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, today we're going to be talking about season six, episode 18. And you can find this for free on YouTube. I would really recommend watching it that way. Um, and this is a solid episode, I thought. I liked it. There were five mysteries in this episode. That kind of blew me away. I thought there was only going to be three because my first one is kind of long. Yeah. Um. There's a lot to it. So I thought we were dealing with a three mystery episode. And then it was like, oh, no, I'm sorry. There's five. This proves that Unsolved Mysteries can do it. You can pack five mysteries into here. Why are we having these episodes with one <laughs> or two mysteries? Or a super know. long update that's just basically the whole mystery uh, over again. Maybe that's actually what made this one so good, was that there was no, no unnecessary updates. And then I, it was just pure c- content hooking right to my veins. If someone did that study of our episodes, like which episodes we liked and which ones we didn't, I bet you would have a correlation between updates. <laughs> I bet yeah. episodes that have no unnecessary updates in them generally get ranked higher. I'm just, it's, you know, it's a th- hypothesis at this point, but... I, I anybody, think you can find that uh, data to support it. If anybody wants to do a little, perhaps it's you data analysis. Also, <laughs> we'll put also, that. We'll put that in a scene. Our if spreadsheets, you, your love language. Yeah. How many episodes did we give four stars to? How many times have we given fashion a thumbs up? I don't know, but <laughs> maybe you do. Maybe you want to find that out. Maybe you already have that data. You just haven't been, you've been too embarrassed to admit it. Now is the time. Oh, we want to know. Don't. Do not Don't keep that to yourself. No. Do not keep that to yourself. Don't keep that from me, a woman that had an X-Files scrapbook. <laughs> will I probably put some more copies of the X-Files scrapbook in this version of the Dean? Yeah, I will. You're going to want to For sure. This. For sure. Okay. So Samantha goes first this week. I love this one. I love this one. Okay, I love this segment. I 100% think it's real. Uh, I I don't know if it's because... Okay, so this first segment is different examples of, like, mothers having, like, ESP moments that their children are in trouble. And my mom definitely told me stories like this all the time growing up. 
So I, I don't, I think I'm just predisposed to believe that this is true, but I do think that parents could have a like oh, yeah. in, intuitive warning that something is wrong. Yeah. You could call it psychic. You could call it a love, like a, a, a parental love connection or something like one person in this episode does. I don't know what it is, but I think it's totally real. So like Liz said, this is uh, about psychic moms. This is the unexplained. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Robert's deck starts. Robert's deck is like quite poetic in this episode. I don't know what got into him or if it's the writers or what, but he. I calls- think I think he just like met a lady or something. He seems like glowing. <laughs> Something's going on. I feel with like Robert's deck. Is, it, in this is episode. it spring? Is he in love? He seems like he's got a little spring in his step. He, he kind of does because he tells us that the bond between mother and child defies the limits of time and space. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't even know what that means. It just means they, they wrote some bullshit. <laughs> it like, defies sure? the limits of time and space. I'm not sure that it does, but I mean, th- those are words you could say. Uh, so we hear of a couple different stories of moms having these premonitions these psychic uh connections to their children that like liz said um is happens when their children are in danger so the first is uh happened to a woman named carolyn herbert uh in 1974 uh, she was a mother of two uh, but there is one specific day that she will never forget she describes um being home in the evening she's doing dishes her husband i don't know what the fuck he's doing but it's not watching the baby uh, <laughs> this this segment makes him seem real useless because Completely okay, useless. she this their house is cute or their reenactment house is cute and she is in this like cute kitchen I don't know baking a cake or doing some mom she thing. was doing the dishes and oh, okay I made it like cuter <laughs> in my head and then the dad is in the living room and this is not HGTV open concept so these are actually like separate rooms <laughs> the the dad is in the living room with the kids and he's reading the paper so apparently he can't like notice what the children are doing like right in front of him in the same room because he's uh, <laughs> apparently completely useless yeah, Monica, uh, her older daughter, is doing homework. And then Sarah, who was a little infant, tiny baby, was on her stomach on the floor doing, like, I don't know, you'd probably call it tummy time now, where she's just, like, sure. laying on the floor with a few little toys in front of her. Completely unattended. But I'm sure that Carolyn assumed her husband was watching the baby, but it seems like he was just reading the paper while the baby was eating a balloon. He's completely engrossed and, like... Oh, new tariffs on Canada. Better better read this newspaper article. And yeah, meanwhile, the baby is right there choking. <laughs> right in front of him, feet away from where he is sitting. So like we said, Carolyn was doing the dishes when suddenly she says that this, uh, like this feeling that there was something wrong just washed over her. And she knew instinctively that something was wrong and she needed to run to the children. So she sensed that her eight-month-old daughter uh, was in trouble, and she ran into the other room and discovered that she was choking on a balloon. Yeah, those things are real hazards. Yeah, yikes. They're Uh, bad for children. They're bad for, like, animals. They never, well, maybe those rubber balloons do, but those, like, helium balloons, like, never decompose. No. Yeah, they're Mm. really bad for the environment and bad for babies. Yep. So this is what Unsolved Mysteries says. Call it mother's instinct. 
call it ESP, call it simply the power of love. Accounts of extraordinary <laughs> intuition of mothers have been handed down for generations. Simply the power of, it's like he's going to burst into a 80s ballad. The power of love. <laughs> yeah. So Robert Stack goes on to say that, yeah, they defy the limits of time and space. And while it may never be scientifically proven, it's far too compelling to be denied. Okay, I totally think that these stories are true. But there's also a cynical part of me that just thinks, look, if you're a parent, you worry about your children 24-7 and it never ever stops. And just like some of those times, something is actually wrong. (laughs) That crossed my mind, too, only because I... I know that I could never trust my own instinct because I'm constantly worried, especially yeah, now. Like, yeah. like obviously this, I'm. it's probably offensive to compare having dogs to children, but I've been home with my dogs for a year and a half now. I almost never leave the house. So when I do have to leave the house and I like go into the office for eight hours, I'm constantly worried that they're at home eating something or somehow I left the door open and they've run away. <laughs> I know I that's constantly in the back of my mind or like you're constantly worried that you left your straight your flat iron plugged in or something and you're gonna burn the house down I constantly have those thoughts in my brain so I know if I had children it would be like that times a thousand and I could probably never trust my own intuition where I would be like oh I have to turn around and make sure the kid's not choking or whatever uh well samantha why did you leave that giant bowl of old deflated balloons on the living room floor <laughs> that was you a didn't mis- want the baby to eat them that was a mistake yeah. yeah i mean yeah exactly that you're just like wait did i actually turn off my hair dryer or did i just <laughs> let that <laughs> is, or am I, is my house going to burn down yeah um yeah i just i can't imagine the level of constant worry that parenting must entail yeah yeah no absolutely and that's why i say no thanks yeah i mean that's one of the reasons i don't have kids i would i would never sleep ever um so our next story is about (laughs) i'll never know this bond that goes between beyond time and space and (laughs) it's a little bit sad but in another way it's like oh life will be so much easier (laughs) i'm not responsible for uh, the life of a a exactly. very delicate small baby. So our next story is about Elaine Emmy and her neighbor Sharon Craker, I think is how you pronounce it. So in 1983, they were traveling for business together and they were about three hours from their home. Uh, uh, if they, live in, they lived in Palm Springs and they were about 110 miles from their homes in Los Angeles. Uh, this was about a three hour drive. They stopped to eat. When suddenly Elaine was seized by an overwhelming sense of dread about her four-year-old son. She describes it as being hit by a wave. It was a powerful feeling, not only emotionally, but also physically. She said she just knew that something wrong was wrong with her son, Matt, immediately. She could not shake the feeling, no matter how hard she tried. Her friend and neighbor and, I think, business partner, Sharon, who was with her, tried to reassure her and say, you know, you're just worried being away from him for, you know, for so long. Like, maybe we should just eat dinner and, and, and maybe the feeling will subside. But she insisted that something was absolutely wrong. Uh, when she couldn't ignore the feeling any longer, she got up from the table and called home, but there was no answer. Convinced that something terrible had happened, she called Sharon's husband, because they were neighbors, but Tom hadn't heard from Elaine's husband or seen anything unusual at their house, which was just across the street. According to Sharon, Elaine began to panic at this point. 
And Sharon describes her as not being out of control, but her mannerisms gave her the impression that she was extremely concerned and agitated. Um, And Elaine insisted at this point that they leave immediately and drive back to Los Angeles. I think this is amazing, actually, that she trusts this instinct so much. Right. I think it's amazing, too, because I would never trust myself this much. I would be, like, I don't know, too worried about making a big deal about nothing. Me, too. Exactly. I would be, like, well, we came all this way, and I don't want to make Sharon drive all the way back. But Elaine was, like, no, something is absolutely wrong with my son. And, of course, this is before cell phones. So her husband, right. if he wasn't at his at the house or whatever, like, she couldn't easily get a hold of him. So. They drive back to Los Angeles. Elaine stopped several times along the way to call home, but no one answered. She said it was the longest three hours of her life. When she and Sharon finally did arrive home, Sharon's husband had stunning news, which was that Matt was in the hospital and being prepped for surgery to reattached severed tendons in his arm. He had fallen and crashed through a plate glass door at the very moment that the sense of dread had swept over Elaine in the restaurant. She says, I was feeling what Matt was going through. There was no doubt about it. I don't think I ever even questioned it. I'm not sure why I was able to feel that way, but I know without any doubt that that was the feeling I was experiencing. So Elaine and her son had been separated by more than 100 miles, but it was as if she had seen the accident with her own eyes. This is where Dr. Thomas Verney um, brings up this theory of why Elaine's bond with her son was so intense. And he looks like a doctor from a cartoon. <laughs> I just want to point out, he's got, like, bushy hair, beard. I don't know. He looks like a doodle. I think he is, this is the doctor that would have this theory about this. Is he, is this a real doctor, or is he a a doctor of, like, you know, they don't say. (laughs) Literature. Is he a medical doctor? You know, they don't say. I think. um, Okay. He, I mean, he has the title of doctor, so. (laughs) Uh, but he says I, that he thinks the connection starts in the womb, that even in the womb, some children and their mothers are more connected than others. And if they are really connected, that it can continue for the rest of their lives. I don't know that I buy this womb theory, but. Yeah, I would ask Dr. Thomas to prove that. <laughs> like, I think, but I, at the same time, I totally believe that there is this connection between it. I feel like I, I also believe in the twin connections. Like you just have a stronger yeah. connection with someone who you've shared a shared a womb with, or you know you carried this baby in your body. And now I think it's very possible that there's connections between you that science can't totally explain. Um. Anyway, hold on. It's a really cute story, and it made me want to go to Palm Springs. So there's yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. So if Elaine Emmy does have a psychic bond with her son, it seems logical that it originated in the womb. However, many adoptive mothers, like our next uh, story, uh, however, many adoptive mothers, like the woman in our next story, have also reported similar experiences. So the third uh, instance of this ESP between parents and children is the story of Linda Bob. Um, she had ad- uh, adopted. How is so- that a real name? I'm sorry, <laughs> Linda. Linda Bob. Well, okay, so I pronounced it Bob. I don't know if it's Bob or Bab. It's B A B B. If it's Linda Bob, that sounds like a haircut I don't want. Maybe it's Linda Bab. Okay. I don't know why there's two B's. Why is it spelled that way, Linda? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember how Robert Stack pronounced it. That's all right. 
So they had three, her and her, her and her husband, Dirk, had three children. And I'm not sure, at least one of them was adopted. I'm not sure if all of them were. Um, but they had definitely adopted children in the past. And they were looking to adopt again. Linda says that around the same time that her and her husband had started considering adopting another child, she had this very intense dream. In the dream, she saw a young woman in labor. She describes her as a, uh, a fair-skinned woman with light-colored hair. She did not know the person, but she could see her vividly. Um, she witnessed the woman, uh, like I said, giving birth. She saw the woman pushing. She even saw the baby's head crown and the baby be born. She said that the baby had dark hair and that he was slightly dark in complexion. At that moment, he was born, he began to cry, and she woke up from the dream. Um, she said she felt startled because it was extremely vivid and realistic. Uh, she had never had a dream that was that vivid, and she looked at the clock on her bedside table and it read 2.59 in the morning on March 8th. Uh, she even uh, told her husband about it. He recounts her coming to him and telling him about the dream. That's how much of an impact it had on her. Um, six weeks later, they got a call from their adoption agency. Uh, they had already applied to adopt a child, and they had called to tell them that there was a baby um, that they might be interested in um, seeing. It was a baby boy. At the agency, an adoption agent brought in the baby for Linda to see. She said he had beautiful golden brown skin and a head of dark hair, and he looked very much like the infant in her dream. And then when she they told her the baby had been born on March 8th at 2.59 in the morning, she was stunned. Um, she said she was speechless. She turned to Dirk and said, "This is this, that's the same time and date of the dream I had, which is incredible to me. Um, taken at this is what Robert Stack says. Taken at face value, these three stories and countless others like them point to an apparent telepathic link between certain mothers and their children. While such a connection may never be fully explained, if you someday get uh, the panicky feeling that your child is in danger, it might not hurt to just wander over and take a look. I think it's so cool that we got an adoptive parent story in this. I would I would love to hear one from a dad too. Yeah. And since I just love a dream story, I mean obviously that last one is really cool. The fact that the time is like the same time. Yeah. Um, I I really liked that they expanded this segment to include more non-traditional families. It's I mean it's still unsolved mysteries. They don't go that non-traditional, but I did yeah, yeah. like that they recognized that there can be connections between parents that goes beyond like a, a blood connection. So I like that a lot too. Yeah, I appreciated that. We get Dirk here has a, a mustache. He's the dad of the the last family. His mustache is called the intuition. Though I gotta <laughs> say, he's kind of handsome. I don't think the stash is helping. I thought that too. You should <laughs> actually both him and Linda. I thought uh, Linda was. I loved her haircut. I thought she was very. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, Dirk could go without the mustache. Dirk needed it to lose that mustache. He was pretty handsome. So yeah. get rid of the intuition, Dirk. <laughs> um, yeah, I liked that one. That was really good. Gets the episode off to a good start. Agreed. Okay, so the next one is a wanted. This takes place in North Hollywood, California, going back to October 25th, 1990. It starts with a woman sitting in her car in the parking lot of her husband's accounting firm. This is also where she worked, which Unsolved Mysteries doesn't mention right away, which I think is a little bit shitty, but 
whatever. Um, and she's shot through the head. Her name was Anita Green. She died two after two days in a coma, and the man who shot her is still at large. So um, this is connected to another series of crimes, which is a woman named Michelle Samet believes she is being targeted by the same man. She was Anita's friend and wrote a book titled No Sanctuary about her death. She thinks An- Anita's killer doesn't appreciate how much she has learned about the case. She is so well-spoken. I thought she yeah. was like one of the better interview subjects that we've seen on the show. She was very put together. I think she does have a background in journalism. They didn't talk about it a whole lot. She once um, referred to it like she would talk about a story she was reporting. Yeah. Which I, I noticed immediately. So I'm assuming that's why, but um, she's very put together and just clearly ballsy, as you'll you'll hear in this story. So um, Anita originally met her husband, in Mel, in 1974, working as a bookkeeper at his accounting firm. They were at that time married to other people, but got married after seven years of knowing each other. Anita's friends were shocked, partly because she signed a prenuptial agreement that this is how Michelle phrases it, that he was like, God, that if they had any disagreement, he automatically won. This sounds completely absurd. Did you think this was actually how it was? I mean, I have no reason to disbelieve her. She seems like, I don't know. Well, I it is not what a prenup is for. A prenup is for like division of assets. So I don't know. But maybe she did have to sign some sort of marriage contract that was like. Do you think it meant like if they have a, a, a dispute, if they were to split up and they had a dispute about anything he just automatically won like do you think that's the kind of dispute that was in the prenup not just like who does the dishes i have no idea it seemed almost like something that would be more in vows than in a prenup legal document yeah but basically that he was always right and she had to like defer to him so her friends were all like pretty shocked she was willing to marry him and her friend, Michelle, actually believes that she was abused, despite Anita constantly making excuses for Mel, that he was just, like, a blowhard and, like, to hear himself talk and stuff like that. But he clearly was, like, very off-putting, and I don't know that really anybody liked him. Um, he just just sort of, like, full of himself. And I don't know if he, like, regularly intimidated people or threatened people, or he just, like, talked himself up a lot. But He seemed to try to intimidate people constantly. Yeah, yeah. I, he seems like an ass. So Anita um, sought refuge from her marriage by becoming more and more involved in her synagogue, and it was rumored that she began an affair with her rabbi. After a while, she asked Mel for a divorce, and he was outraged. Strangely, as part of the divorce proceedings, Mel insisted that Anita continue to work with him, which seemed to be an acknowledgement that she knew too much about his business. Because on the one hand, he's like putting her down and telling her that she's stupid and useless and blah, blah, blah. But then it's also saying like, like as part of the divorce, like she's not allowed to quit her job because he needs her and the like firm would suffer without her and she needs to like keep working for him. That couldn't possibly be legally binding. I'm not a lawyer, but that seems not right. No, that's, you can't force people to work for you, like, <laughs> indefinitely. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, so he seemed to be worried more about her stopping working for him than her divorcing him. And it may be that he knew, she knew too much about his business. Um during their divorce proceedings, he would send both Anita and her lawyer threatening letters. 
which is one way to <laughs> to even her lawyer. Yeah, that's one way to conduct yourself in a divorce proceeding. Yeah, is saying like, dear lawyer, I'm going to kill Anita. Wow, okay. So we meet a Detective Ray Hernandez at this point who has a serious cheap wiggum mustache. Like it is <laughs> it is cheap wiggum. Yeah. It is huge. Um and he tells us about the three witnesses to Anita's murder. We don't get to know these people's names, and I assume that that is to protect them. So we have three different witnesses. One is a man who worked across the street in the building, whatever that other business was. And he actually that day saw Mel waiting outside this door that no one ever used, looking at his watch, shortly before Anita's convertible appeared, closely followed by a motorcycle. So it's like a guy... He's out there. He's like, oh, what time is it? That time I asked that my wife murdered. Let me see. Oh, look, there she is. Oh, and she's closely followed by a motorcycle. That guy I hired to kill her. Great. And then he like goes back inside. Okay. The second witness is a guy who was working on a nearby roof. So he actually saw even more. He saw a man park his motorcycle on the wrong side of the street, run to Anita's parked convertible, fire one shot through the window and then run back to the motorcycle and speed away. However, at that time, the shooter was wearing a helmet, a motorcycle helmet and visor. So he didn't have a like look at his face. However, they don't explain how, but there's a third witness who saw the cyclist shortly after the murder remove his helmet and visor. So that person worked on with the police for a sketch. And it's this white dude with like dumb and dumber hair. (laughs) Like, like there's this, like, really awkward length for men's hair, like, Dutch boy paint. Like, yeah, it kind of, Unsolved Mysteries makes it look like it's kind of bleached. In a, you know when you bleach your hair, but it turns, it ends up being more orange? Than, it gets, it, yeah, yeah. Like, kind of the shade of his hair. If you have dark hair, it's hard to get it really light, light away. Like, you have to strip off that color. So it, like gets kind of yeah like orangey rusty for a while so it kind of looks like that it's kind of a mess it kind of looks like straw <laughs> it's like this is a scarecrow man i don't know whatever some poor hair choices were made so immediately after anita died when her body was still in the room her husband mel turned to anita's friend phyllis and said i look pretty good don't i and then he explained bizarre to- <laughs> way to behave at your wife's deathbed she like she seriously croaks and then it would be like yeah i if mac okay i croak mac turns to samantha i'm literally like they haven't even wheeled my body out and he was like hey i'm looking pretty good right i lost a bunch of weight look how good i look that's what he was saying to her friend he starts to explain that he's been on this like new liquid diet as if she gives a fuck as if anyone does. As if this woman isn't like, oh my god, my friend Anita is dead. This is horrible. Like, hey, she was baby. just murdered. Yeah, Ugh. yeah. So that police were also su- police were also su- su- surprised when they went to go talk to Mel about his wife's death, and he lawyered up immediately. Now that's not really evidence, but whatever. for this guy, kind of is though. <laughs> It's just a sort of a pattern of behavior that the police were like, yeah, so we definitely aren't looking at a ton of suspects, right? 
We're not casting like a wide net for this one. We just got to find some evidence on Mel. So despite there being much direct evidence, since everybody agreed Mel had hired somebody, he wasn't the guy on the motorcycle himself, but he was still convicted of first degree murder on March 4th, 1992, and he got life without parole. In May of 92, so right after he was convicted, Mel agreed to be interviewed for Michelle's book despite his lawyer's advice. So this was her friend that was writing that book, No Sanctuary. She said that she went in with an open mind, but that Mel himself quickly convinced her of his guilt through his behavior. Um, However, she kept meeting with him for interviews because she wanted to figure out how Mel had paid a hitman, which is something the police had not been able to uncover because he had not, um, there hadn't been any bank withdrawals or anything like that. But what she discovered was that he had sold a rare coin for $30,000 three weeks before Nina's death. And this is a little bit foreshadowed. I don't know how accurate this is, but in the reenactment of their divorce proceedings, he's like yelling about how he has rare coins and rare stamps and like Anita's not going to get any of that. It was, so. it was well thought out by Unsolved Mysteries. I actually think this segment is very well told. Um, so during one of Michelle's visits to Mel in prison, she saw him several times, usually for like a whole day because she was trying to get all this information for her, her book. And also I think kind of hoping he would like slip up. Um, she would, she was asked to leave when another visitor arrived and like, as she's going up to leave, Mel says that the person coming is like a brother to him and that he quote, would do anything for me. He's a homeowner because of me. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Michelle goes and sits outside in her car while this other meeting is happening and she sees the other dude leave and get on a motorcycle and he looks exactly like that police sketch and is riding the same type of like Suzuki motorcycle that the killer was riding. So when she goes back to see Mel, you know, that same day, now that his other visitor has gone, she's upset. So she tells him that she knows about the coins and that she knows that he hired Anita's killer. And at this point, Mel gets extremely angry and starts yelling at her that she's not allowed to print lies and blah, blah, blah. But ends up saying, if you end up dead after I make a call, you'll know who did it. Oh, my God. I have questions. My main question is, do they just let anybody walk into this prison and without giving their <laughs> That's name? That's the thing. That's the thing. I expected her to see this guy come out and be like, oh, my God, that's him. And then run to the prison and be like, who was just here? He's driving the same motorcycle. He has the same stringy straw hair. It's the guy. That's him. Or maybe they're not allowed to give her that information. Fucking call Detective Hernandez. Get him to get it or whatever right you like show an id before you can go talk to a prisoner at least on tv you do i don't know <laughs> but i th- thought you had to check in and go through this whole like you know a a, a metal at detector least have and... to sign a piece of paper and walk through a metal detector i mean i guess you could give a fake name but oh that's so frustrating <laughs> I mean, maybe he had fake ID or something. That's never addressed. And I really expected her to, like, now know who the killer was. And that, like, never comes up again. I was like, you saw him. He's right there. Go, go figure out who that guy is. She got but, in her car and chased him down. No, that probably wouldn't have been safe. But would have made for no. a better story. Yeah. 
So after this, after this confrontation at the jail, he's Miss Mel sends Michelle a series of threatening letters, which apparently he loves to do. He loves to like write down threats that are very provable that came from him. Not super smart. And after a while, those threats escalated. Her gate was her the gate at her home was torn off of its hinges. Her house was vandalized, and an unidentified man hit her in the face, breaking her nose. Oh my god. She delivers this information like pretty casually. Like she does not seem this would have really shaken me up. She doesn't seem like that shaken up. She says, like, look, I've had to deal with some stuff, you know, looking into stories. I'm mostly worried about my kids. But yeah, like, yeah, a guy punched me in the face, broke my nose. What you gonna do? <laughs> Comes with the job. What? Yeah, yeah. But she did say that those, um, the threats and stalking had died down since the book came out. And I'm guessing that Mel was just like, it's too late. Right? Like, they tried to scare her out of publishing it and it didn't work. So that's the end of the story. The police believe Michelle about the stalker, but they never found the gunman or the stalker. Um, And I can just read to you what is on the Unsolved Mysteries wiki. It is unresolved. Um, Mel Green did appeal his sentence, but that was denied. Um, He died in prison while serving a life sentence for Anita's murder. However, the hitman was never identified. Investigators believe that Michelle's theory about the man man is accurate and are still pursuing new leads. It's like, well, it's been a while. (laughs) Um, I feel like this segment was very well told. Great story. Yeah, me too. Horrible tragedy for Anita and her family, but, like, very well, it was a very good depiction of this mystery. I agree. Okay. Now, back to you, Samantha. So, we have three more mysteries, and that means that some of these are kind of short. This one's a little bit short. This is about a a fraud. There was Um, totally an episode of Original Recipe Law & Order about this fraud. Does not surprise me. I just want to put that out there. So in this segment, we get to see, hear Robert Stack say swoop and squat multiple times. Swat. Swat. Swoop. Sw- <laughs> no, swoop and squat. Oh, it is? Yes, squat. I watch with subtitles on. It's swoop, oh. swoop and squat. I thought it was swat. <laughs> Why no. squat? Why? I, I Why? Because you're stepping on the brakes that's squatting. I'm Honestly, I'm not really sure, but hearing Robert Stack say the word squat is really funny to me. <laughs> And he says it multiple times. So this is about a fraud known as, like I said, swoop and squat. <laughs> so we start out with like a, a news footage from like a, a news helicopter uh, of a car accident on an interstate. And Robert Stack tells us this is an all too common occurrence. A car has collided with a truck along Interstate 5 in Los Angeles uh, the firefighters have to pull someone out. It's a really bad deal. What Robert Stack says is unusual, and what you might be surprised to know is that this was actually part of a fraud attempt. The fraud is called Swoop and Squat. It's a scheme which involves two or three cars and a victim. These uh, fraudsters tend to choose trucks. I assume it's because the trucks can't stop as quickly, so they are more likely to succeed with a larger truck. The trucks are probably more likely to be insured. Mm-hmm. Um, so they tend, but that makes this fraud and the scheme even more dangerous because they are doing this with big trucks and they're usually 
The people perpetrating the fraud are in small cars, so it can end in disaster. So what happens is a large truck is chosen. Uh, The first car is called the squat car, and it goes in front of the truck while a second car boxes it in on one side. Sometimes there's two cars boxing in both sides. The squat car tries to distract the truck driver while a third car uh, swoops is called the swoop car and it gets into position. The swoop car uh, quickly drives in front of the squat car, which causes the squat car and the victim's truck to slam on their brakes. The truck then hits the squat car and the occupants of that car pretend to suffer from minor soft tissue injuries, which they report to an attorney who then makes the claim. Um, we are told that because they typically complain of like vague um, soft tissue injuries that wouldn't show up on an x-ray for instance it's really hard to disprove them like whiplash stuff like that right exactly and so the attorneys make millions of dollars in this scheme um, the attorneys robert stack tells us are usually the ringleaders of these operations and they work out of office buildings sometimes hundreds of miles away it's interesting how complicated this fraud is um because yeah, it's something that goes up to like much more powerful people than the people who are actually at risk of getting hurt. Right. And the other thing is I feel like I've I can't recall a specific instance, but I feel like this is the type of fraud that people talk about and always blame the people who are like driving the cars, which they're not innocent either. But Robert Stack goes on to explain to us that um they're kind of victims too, because one, they could easily be killed trying to do this scheme um and typically the way it goes is that the ringleaders of these operations again working out of the safety of an office building sometimes many much sometimes a long distance away um they recruit people who go around um it's like a middleman they go around and recruit people who are probably desperately in need of money um, and they pay them as little as three hundred dollars sometimes to perpetrate these schemes Sometimes these people die because they're being hit by trucks. Right. So it's a dangerous game. Um, After the crash on Interstate 5, we're told that several swoop and squat drivers came forward and identified two of the ringleaders. And that's where this mystery uh, is, is we're trying to find um, these two. Uh, They are Philman Santiago and Gary Miller. Santiago... Uh, is a Mexican a Mexican national who lives in Los Angeles. Uh, papers in his apartment linked him to Miller, who was a is a was a prominent attorney. Miller uh, has since been arrested, but denies any involvement in the schemes. And Santiago remains at large. Um, I just thought this one ended so abruptly, like almost like they had edited part of it out. Yeah, I thought that too. It was an extremely short mystery, and. Um, the result, I'm looking at Unsolved Mysteries Wiki to see if there was an update. Uh, yes, Gary Miller was sentenced to six years for vehicular manslaughter, fraud, and conspiracy and has since been released. A few days before the broadcast, Philman Santiago was captured in Houston, Texas. He was convicted of vehicular manslaughter and sentenced to several years in prison. He has also since been released. Watchers of Original Law and Order, I can't remember what this episode was called, but the actual bad guy was the insurance company Mm. in that because it was the person recruiting people because it wanted the fraudulent billing. Like it was Uh. making money off fraudulent billing. I'm sure everybody wanted to know that. Okay. I have a lost heir. 
And this appeals to me because it's about collecting old junk. <laughs> and Robert Stack waxes poetic about antiques. Yes, and that he makes this claim that if you collect antiques, you'll get pulled into an unsolved mystery of your own. And I really am just waiting for that to happen to me. So this is the story of Jonathan Grady, a collector in Los Angeles. In 1980, he was out shopping when he saw a box of assorted junk. He asked the seller about some Bunsen burners that were in there, and she made him an offer for the whole box. Um, she was basically like, get this out of here, which was apparently $50 back in 1980. And I have to say, that box of stuff did not look worth that at all. <laughs> I wouldn't pay that now. It was like old Bunsen burners and oil cans. It's just like garbage. I don't know why he paid this, but he wanted some of that stuff. And one of the things that was in there was this old family Bible, which was quite large and had a very worn binding. He only took it home because it came with other stuff he had bought. <laughs> um, Jonathan Grady does have a stash, which I wrote down, attractive stash. It's very neat. It fits his face. It's called The Collector. A lot of okay. mustaches in this one. A lot of mustaches. So he thought maybe he would display the Bible in his living room, but when he took it to bookbinders, he learned it would cost two to $300 to repair, and he was kind of like, F that. So he just put it in storage and forgot about it until one day, about a decade later, he was writing something, and he wanted a quote from the Book of Job. And apparently, this was the only Bible he owned. So he, <laughs> so he pulled it out of storage to get the quote. And at this point, he saw that an illuminated page in the Bible that he hadn't seen before. And this is in um, something that used to be in old family Bibles, where it so has sort of a family tree. So it shows that the Bible was given to Charles Lazarus and Franny Bergman on their wedding day in March 25th, 1874. And since... Um, it used to be pretty common that a Bible was one of the few books a family would own. They used it to record the births in their family. So they were married in Cincinnati, and they recorded the births of their two sons and three daughters, as well as the marriages of those children and the birth of their one grandchild. For whatever reason, Jonathan gets kind of obsessed with this Bible, and he wants to return it to the family heirs. And it was, like, covered in some newspaper, and he got a letter from someone that was, like, vaguely related to them but didn't know where they were anymore i don't know there's no update and honestly i feel like stuff like this must happen all the time so i'm not sure why this got its own segment yeah i was expecting there to be something more than just he wanted to return the the book to them i mean that's nice at all it but... is nice but yeah i'm not sure it's nice enough to be on tv <laughs> Okay, so on the Unsolved Mysteries wiki, there's like tons of updates about this whole family, and I don't know that anyone cares. <laughs> Is there anything good in there? How did Unsolved Mysteries wiki find out? I don't know. <laughs> of interesting note is her nephew, Solomon Joseph Salty... Salty Saul Fleischman, who became a longtime Florida radio and TV personality, known much for his fishing enthusiasm what is his name <laughs> solomon joseph or salty saul fleisman <laughs> salty saul yes salty saul known for his love of fishing died april 20th 2000 at south bay hospital oh salty he saul may he rest in peace the most direct heirs to the bible would be philip mortimer light's nephews and niece like who are the heirs people? to the Bible? Is it 
worth the, money? The thing is, I there's just the fact that it wasn't worth repairing. Like the 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 spine binding on this, like many old books, has fallen apart. So Jonathan looked into getting it repaired, and they're like, "Dude, this is gonna cost you two hundred dollars." And he went, "Never mind." So I don't think. It's not like he was like, oh, if I make a $200 investment, this Bible's worth thousands. It's just an old family Bible. It's like kind of cool, but it's not. I don't know that it's really that rare or valuable. And it doesn't. It may not even be valuable to this family. <laughs> I kind of get the impression that it's not. Like nobody seems to be looking for it. They did get rid of it. <laughs> and I feel like lots of old junk you could probably trace to someone's fit. They got rid of it at some point. And maybe there is someone in the family that would like it back, but I'm not getting that impression about this. I don't know why that deserved a segment of Unsolved Mystery. (laughs) Though, you know, Jonathan seems like a nice guy trying to do a good deed, but whatever. (laughs) This seems pointless to me. I I appreciate his dedication to finding this family. Yeah, but I feel like you could do that with like I have so many used books that are like to so and so. I'll love you forever. This person. And they and that ended up in the goodwill. Like, am I gonna go track that person down? Be like, I don't know. And they'll be like, this is on primetime TV yeah. right now. And they're gonna be like, This is from my ex. I never wanna see this again. How dare you? I gave this to the goodwill for a reason. Yeah. All right. We have one more. This one sucks. I mean, it's a good thing to bring attention to, but it's just my absolute fucking nightmare, so. Yeah, and also I don't know if there's an update. This one is is frustrating, and trigger warning for sexual assault on this one, because it's not good uh i found it upsetting to be honest um this this is a really short and kind of straightforward wanted segment we are looking for dr arvind sinha he is wanted for six counts of rape to his female patients i wrote down five mysteries and then it goes wow i hate this and then it goes i hope this guy is dead I, I echo mean, that hope. sentiment. I hope I'm not going to kill him, but if it turns out he got killed in a swooping swat, I'm not too worried about it. I'm not going to be upset about it. So one of his victims is 19-year-old. Uh, they call her Patricia. It's not her real name. Uh, she's also not shown in the Unsolved Mysteries, but we do hear her voice. She says that on January 7th, 1992, she came into his doctor's office complaining of flu-like symptoms. She was very sick. She had a fever. She was not feeling well at all. Uh, She said that he came into the exam room and started acting strange, asking sexual questions and asking her if she... Asking sexual questions that were completely unrelated to her illness and asking her repeatedly if she had a boyfriend. So gross. You can imagine what happened next. She left the exam office in tears. She was afraid to tell anyone there what happened, but she called her mother who contacted the police. They then took her to another hospital where she was examined. um, And then uh, the police uh, were involved as well. I think that's so brave. Me too. I, I, I can't imagine being in that situation at 19. And I totally understand not trusting the other people this guy works with absolutely like like you don't know them either you trusted him as your doctor and look what happened Mm -hmm. so yeah her her mother was smart to take her to a different hospital 
Um, so pre- be prepared to be even more furious because we find out that five other young women uh, since January 1989 had reported him to the police for sexual assault. However, the California State Medical Board had chosen not to revoke his medical license because they said it was the patient's word against the doctor's. Uh, I could have really spared other people so much pain and like yep not oh, take I think that this seriously was, okay i may have misspoke um i'm not sure at what point the police unsolved mysteries uh made it sound like the police only got involved after patricia reported him i'm not exactly sure if that's true or not but the state of california okay. definitely received reports of his actions and chose to do nothing well he had been moved to another clinic right like he had had complaints at an old clinic and they fired him so he just went somewhere else and did it again yep so at this point uh after patricia arrested him he was arrested after (laughs) that would be amazing after patricia arrested him herself (laughs) she got deputized and went in no, she, no should, he was... she shouldn't have to do that herself. <laughs> Could you imagine? She was after she reported him. She was arrested by by Detective Christine Gregg. Uh, Christine noticed that he was very strangely emotionless to all to the charges and all of her questions, which isn't evidence of anything except that he is clearly messed up. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it's, it's not evidence, but it is gross and disheartening. Like, yeah, it, it, it does make it all creepier somehow. She said he didn't sound surprised. He like showed almost no emotion. He he kept claiming that he maybe was being set up or something. She said he he had no response to her questions or charges except complete apathy, which you would think he would have an emotion one way or another. <laughs> well, he, she would say things like you've been charged with rape and he would just go, how interesting. Yeah. Like, his response to everything was, how interesting. And there's something very creepy about that to me. It's very creepy. It's bizarre behavior. It may or may not be evidence of anything, but it is creepy and bizarre. Yeah. So, the next day, he posted bail and promptly disappeared. His medical license oh. at this point was finally revoked. Um, police believe that Dr. Sinha is still in the United States, possibly working as a doctor, which is disheartening. Uh, they describe him and show a photo of him. I wanted to see if he had been caught, and I don't think he was. I hate this! Oh, so the Unsolved Mysteries wiki says that he, the result is that he's still wanted, and that Unsolved Mysteries has stated that they no longer have contact information regarding the law enforcement agency that's handling his case. However, he is still at large. So what does so, that mean? The, the statute of limitations cool. has kicked in? Or something? I'm sure it has. They don't say that, but I, at this point, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure it has. I don't. Well, know hopefully, my state, wish came true, and the reason we haven't found him is because he's dead in the ground, and Magus ate all of his eyeballs, and there's nothing left to find. Let's hope. I mean, I'm just, I'm gonna tell myself that's what happened to make myself feel better. Yeah, that's. I. It's a bitter note to end on. It's a horrible case. I mean, I commend Patricia for coming forward. I'm sure that was not an easy thing to do. I'm sure for a lot of people, that's actually like worse than the actual assault. So, I mean, power to her. But 
to this to be the result also like she goes through the trauma of like reporting this and then it's just like oh he got away we have no idea where he is <sighs> oh so so comforting yeah she, you know what she should have gone and arrested him herself she may have Please been are useless. yeah okay let's rate this episode all right we have categories and our first one is mysteriousness okay actually kind of mysterious doom parents have esp don't know want to know more about it yep um what was that guy on the motorcycle who killed anita where is he what is he up to like i'm it's not mysterious that mel was the you know ringleader there but they never found that shooter um the swat thing swat Swooping Squad is not mysterious, but it is an interesting fraud case, I think, because it has such a, there's so many, like, layers to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay, the Bible is not very mysterious. But then they what happened found in this... the family, so in a way. <laughs> oh, true, true. Do families have Bibles? Tune in to Unsolved Mysteries to find out. And then we have this horrible last case where this total jag off was not caught so i'm gonna say pretty mysterious thumbs up thumbs up reenactments okay. you know i like I, I liked them like we said your first mystery was very well told i felt like it had a story yeah. arc to it yeah and i liked it a lot i thought the even though the one actor is wearing an absurd fat suit <laughs> i feel like uh it was pretty good that was more costuming than the reenactments yeah, that's not great. Um, ugh, yeah, I apologize for that, I guess. Am I responsible for that content? Um, look, I'm not pleased. But in general, I thought the reactments were good. I thought that that segment was, yes, has a nice arc to it. It's almost like a whole little movie or something. Uh-huh. Um, you know, yeah, thumbs up. Why not? Thumbs up. Why not? fashion is our next one okay i thought there was some great fashion on this i particularly love the sweater that the antiques dealer who sells jonathan that box of junk is wearing obviously she can afford great sweaters if she's charging people 50 dollars for a box of trash so (laughs) she has this it might be mohair i don't know it's like brightly colored squares it's actually very chic and cute and i would wear it right now um and I think we also got some, what else other fashions So we got? Was Jonathan in that same segment wearing a sweater vest? Or am I, I just, so. is that just how I remember him? No, he had glasses. He did seem like a sweater vest kind of guy. Him and his, his, his collections. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think. I, I feel like we had some friend. good mom fashion in the first one. Totally. Yes. And Anita's friend, Michelle, too, mm-hmm. had some like. I'm going to kick ass and take names, uh, but it's also 1990. <laughs> <Fashion>. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Thumbs up. It's not like a huge thumbs up, but still. still. Well, there's up. also all the mustaches, which we typically include oh, in this that's category. True. There's so many mustaches in this one. So, yeah, you got to give it a thumbs up. Yeah. And then Robert Sack's got to get a thumbs up from us, too, right? He is he on something mood. in this episode. He had a quickie before filming and he's just like glowing he's so happy with life sometimes you can tell he's like i'm doing what what's this show i have to talk about aliens again like my career is in the toilet and then this episode he was like 
I don't know. Maybe he was like, moms are going to love me after this one. <laughs> I don't know. But he seemed in a great mood about it. Thank you, Stack. Thank, Thank you. you for sharing that with us. <laughs> that bliss just radiating out of him. <laughs> okay, so let's see. So we have five Robert Stacks. This is our rating scale. Obviously, five Robert Stacks is better than one Robert Stack. What would you rate this episode? I really did like this episode. I feel like it's pretty solid. I like the variety of mysteries. I like that we got five. I like that there's no unnecessary updates. Um, we have, yeah, a little supernatural, a little fraud, a little murder, a little this, a family Bible for some reason. Um, I would give it a four. I think yeah. it's just like, it makes you want to watch the next episode. You know what I mean? Agreed. You're, yeah. Where you're just like, oh yeah, Unsolved Mysteries. This is good shit. Lay it on me, Robert Stack. What do you got next? Any more family Bibles that aren't with their families anymore? Any more pets that have traveled extremely long oh, distances? Give me more lost pet mysteries. I want so many more lost pet mysteries and so many more psychic parent stories. And just like prophetic dreams in general. Make this show about that from now on. Yeah. Yeah, please. Because some of these are just a little sad. Or very sad. I yeah, I would say this is a great one to like make sure your mom has watched. Yeah. You know. If you are you having your mom over for like a weekend, put this on. Put this do a little crafting, watch some on oh that sounds so good. It does actually. Yeah. Make make us make some sun tea and yeah. get working on that that craft project isn't gonna craft itself. No, it's not. Your good little fingers gotta get working. <laughs> Okay, so is the um, is there a word for something you eat at like the end of the meal? It's not dessert. Is there the equivalent of like an amuse bouche of uh? The I'm end? sure there is, and I'm also sure <laughs> I've never eaten a meal like that, so I don't know what that would be called. Where they like they like bring out the sorbet to like cleanse your palate. Well, this is the yeah. little this is the little palate cleanser part of the show because. Yeah, we just ended with this horrible sexual assault and this guy that got away, except, you know, hopefully he was eaten alive by rats. But um, <laughs> as a little palate cleanser, we'd like to end the show with a recommendation. And probably the greatest tragedy of us moving to a bi-weekly format is that you get less recommendations. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. That must be rough. I will start it out with an update on a recommendation, Ooh. which if which if anybody recalls me talking about the sort of gothy clothing company Foxblood, I wanted to clarify, I don't know if this is always true, but when I recommended that place, I said that all of their clothing was made in Los Angeles. And our friend Arden recently ordered something that the quality was like not very good. Like it was mm -hmm. cute. But it was not well made. And we took it to this place to get altered. And the woman was like, yeah, this was not made here. Mm. And I don't really know, like, how she knows that. But whatever. And I looked at their website because I was like, I swear. <laughs> I swear that in, like, you know, preparing to recommend it, I looked into this. Um, and I noticed that it no longer says, like, across the website made in Los Angeles, but mm -hmm. certain items of clothing are from their signature collection. And those are made in Los Angeles. Okay. But not everything they sell falls into that. 
got it. So I felt bad since I had recommended this company and I had said that the quality was good and she ordered this dress and then, I mean, it's cute, but the quality of it is not great. And the like lining of it was like weirdly sewed to the outer part in a way that like (laughs) made it hard to wear and stuff like that. Anyway, so I didn't want other people to end up having that experience based on my recommendation. Mm -hmm. So I'm just clarifying that if that is important to you, take a little look. Look around that website. Make sure you understand what you're ordering because I was not aware of that previously. But I did want to recommend the place that, that we took the dress to get altered, which is a tailor and sewing shop near me called Rethink Tailoring that is all about taking stuff you already own and sort of upcycling it or remaking it into something you will actually wear which I think is very cool. So uh, me and Arden went for their class that was all about creative ways to like let out clothing, which is, you know, much harder to do than like <laughs> just oh, yeah. make something smaller, but like sort of creative ways to like insert more fabric or whatever to make something that like, oh, I don't know, maybe you've been sitting around the house for a year and a half and your clothes don't fit quite the way that they did a year and a half ago. Maybe you would like them to be a little more comfortable, right? right? Or maybe you just wear more comfortable clothes now. I know that's true uh, for me. Also, also very possible. And you're thinking to yourself, Liz, that's great, but I don't live in the witch district. What does this recommendation have to do with me? Well, don't worry. They have classes online. So you could take a class from them to learn some cool sewing stuff, and you don't actually have to live in Minneapolis. So they have classes on things like alterations, there's hemming, there's taking in the sides of stuff, there's letting stuff out. There's a class I'm really interested in, which is learning to sew from a pattern. Um, You can also get, like, private sewing stuff. Like, say you're working on a project and you're stuck, like, you don't understand what the next step of the pattern is and you don't know what to do mm-hmm. like you could conference with the people at rethink and they would like help you through it i saw that like they that. also do sewing machine troubleshooting which yes. that is a service that needs to exist let me tell you sewing machines really have a mind of their own every single one has a totally different personality and yes yeah, sometimes you're just like why is the thread in my bobbin always getting tangled up into a big hot mess i don't understand what i'm doing wrong so that is a service that they offer i mean you can also just like take their clothes there to get tailored and they have stuff that they've made to sell but i think for you know most of the five out there um the best way to use their services would probably be these uh online classes there's one on like hand mending um yeah, there's stuff about sewing machines, whatever. So um, if you're interested in that, it's RethinkTailoring.com. And you have to look under their shop to see the classes, which I think is slightly confusing. But anyway, that's where that's located. And I think it is a cool service. Um, I know at this point, the earth is dying. And like us upcycling a pair of jeans is not going to save it. I realize that. But I, there is a, like, thrifty Midwestern part of me that just yeah. loves taking something and making something else out of it. Like, well, also, just, maybe you just have a shirt that you loved when you could fit into it and you'd love to wear it again. And if you can, I mean, I, I know that I have shorts, for example, that I'm never going to be able to find another pair. If those things wear out, I'm going to be devastated. <laughs> yeah because right? they 
because it's so hard for me to find shorts I feel comfortable in and I'm not going to be able to make a whole new pair of shorts. So like if they get a hole in a, in them, it'd be really good for me to be able to just repair them and keep get some more life out of them. Yeah. Yeah. There's just something to me like like a scrap quilt to make something useful out of just like nothing, out of just like trash. Yeah. Is it's like alchemy. It's so amazing to me. It's like, wow, you really like you really did that. You really spun that straw into gold. <laughs> exactly. So I yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I took in a t-shirt that I for a band, the drums, that I really like, but I've always hated the way this t-shirt fits. And I can't get rid of the shirt. No. Anyway, so we worked on that. It was nice. Arden brought in her dress that I feel bad that I recommended the place. <laughs> but now she can, it fits better. So sorry, Arden. What is your recommendation for this week? I'm recommending a book. Okay. So I just read the book Six Days in August by David King. David King has written a, a bunch of nonfiction. This is the first book of his I've read. And I'm not going to lie. I picked it up only because the audiobook is narrated by my favorite audiobook narrator. Oh, ah, sure. Jefferson yeah. Mays. He, I've talked about the series The Expanse a lot on the show. He narrates that series. And I've read some of his other, some of the other books he's narrated. But I've never read nonfiction uh, books that he's narrated. This one came out last year. And I was interested enough to pick it up. And I really liked it. I will say, I was looking right before this episode started, I was looking at the Goodreads page for this book. And I noticed that it's one of those books that has more three and four star reviews than five star reviews, which surprised me a little bit because Mm. I really liked it. I feel like I would maybe give it four or four and a half stars. Mm -hmm. I should take a step back and and describe what this book is about. It's the nonfiction story of... um, the bank robbery that happened in Stockholm, Sweden, that uh, resulted in the Stockholm syndrome diagnosis. Oh, it was interesting. The, it was the origin of Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, yeah. And this tells the whole story of that that heist, which I knew nothing about previous. I mean, I knew the general origins of it, and I know like the Stockholm syndrome, how it's portrayed in like movies and stuff. Um, and this tells the story of that bank robbery. And like I said, the book doesn't have a ton of action, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a lot of interesting stuff in it. So the thing of it is, is that this robbery happened over six days. And for a lot of that time, they were just sitting there eating sandwiches. Mm. Like there wasn't a <laughs> lot of of action that was happening, but there was still interesting enough things going on like the police making baffling choices the media doing a lot of different things um what i liked about the book too is that the author tells the story of the bank robbery and you know because it's in the subtitle of the book the story of stockholm syndrome you know that this is like the origin of that supposed syndrome and um i haven't looked into stockholm syndrome beyond this book but i can tell you (laughs) that the way Stockholm syndrome is depicted in popular media is like not at all what happened to these people who were held hostage by these gunmen. They absolutely did not fall in love with their captors. They weren't infatuated. They weren't even abused by their captors, which is how Stockholm syndrome is portrayed. Yeah. It's depicted as, as people being abused and then, falling in love or sympathizing with their abusers and whether or not that actually happens I'm not totally sure but what happened to these women and without giving too much of it away uh is mainly that the police in this situation bungled this robbery so 
poorly that the victims, the hostages in this hostage situation, in my opinion, rightly so, feared that if anyone was going to kill them, it was going to be the police. (laughs) And they just wanted desperately to leave with the robbers because they got Mm. to know the robbers. They understood their motivations. They understood that the robbers had no intentions and no desire to harm them. And the robbers' demand was to be, I mean, they demanded money obviously which the they were given um and they demanded to be to be allowed to leave with the hostages and the hostages repeatedly said that they wanted to go with them and people didn't understand why but in retelling the story you come to understand that they were just afraid that the police were going to go in (laughs) guns blazing and that they were going to provoke a shootout and the hostages would be killed in the crossfire which i think absolutely could have happened based on the behavior of the police and then additionally as the hostage situation goes on you see this behavior from the on the part of the police towards the hostages that could only be described as cruel they refuse to talk to the hostages they laughed at the hostages multiple times in contrast the robbers treated them very well and obviously they were not being treated well in the sense that they were held hostage, but they actually spent six days with them, got to know them. There's a, a very interesting dynamic that's that happened in this situation, but it's nothing like Stockholm Syndrome is portrayed in movies hmm. and things like that. And part of that, there's an element of media sensationalism and things like that, which I think the police also had a hand in. Um, and that kind of led to how, how we understand Stockholm Syndrome today. It's all very interesting and i was surprised that it didn't get better reviews but it does at times move a little slowly but i think that's just uh, a result of the fact that the situation moved slowly if that makes sense you kind of feel that yeah, as an sure. author. like a lot of the six days were just people waiting around for something to happen um i thought it was a really good book the, obviously i recommend the narr- the audiobook because the narrator is great um I enjoyed What's it. I enjoyed the book again. It's called Six Days in August by yeah. David King. The story of Stockholm Syndrome. It came out last year. Um, I enjoyed it. And it was also just a, a very interesting situation. And I kept being like, I can't believe this is how the police are handling this. I mean, would I know how to respond to a hostage situation? No, but I kind of know I wouldn't do all of the things they did. (laughs) Yeah. You would hope if you were the person in charge that you would have a better sense of, like they shouldn't be just pulling us off the street and being like, figure it out. Um, Do they explain why in Die Hard, they keep calling it Helsinki syndrome? So Um, distract, so distracting and weird. No, I don't know. Is that just a mistake? I I honestly don't know. <laughs> Did they think that was trademarked and they weren't allowed to say it? Did they get the wrong city? I just don't know. It's so distracting. Uh, I've I never noticed that about about Die Hard, but yeah, you're right. That would be extremely distracting. <laughs> okay, well, as we ponder the origins of Helsinki syndrome, uh, we'll wrap up this podcast. <laughs> Uh, you can follow us on social media. You can go to our website, perhaps it's you.com. You can send us a spooky story or a contribution to the zine at perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com. 
you can send us some money. You fish out of a mall fountain. A dollar will get you uh-huh. access to uh-huh. a backlog of over 40 bonus episodes. And we record a bonus episode every month. There's other tiers as well. If you have a little bit more money burning a hole in your pocket, you could get a coloring sheet every month. We send out quarterly gifts to our super duper mystery solvers. You can join the Lenny Briscoe fan club, which I feel like we don't promote enough on the show. You can get a little picture yeah. of Lenny Briscoe. Uh, who is a dog, uh, not a fictional <laughs> detective. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, two dollars if you want a picture of We're my on Patreon. dog. Yeah, Lenny and Mister. Our newest Patreon episode was about the show Crime Scene Kitchen, yes. which I actually did watch another episode of. So. And there's no actual crimes, but there is no. Some there's a lot goods. of baking. A lot of You'll baking. Though. Really want a cannoli after you listen to our <laughs> coverage of Crime Scene Kitchen? <laughs> so true. And, oh, yeah, and you need to subscribe to this podcast. You need to do us a solid and hit that motherfucking subscribe button. And you should really leave us a five-star review of this, you know, on something that takes reviews, whatever that is. Just saying that it's it's your favorite podcast, that you're so proud of us, that um, the show gives you hope for humanity. They always have good takes. They never get anything wrong. They always pronounce things right. These are all things you can put in your five-star review. Just giving you some ideas. How can podcast hosts so beautiful also be so humble? Uh, Yeah. Why are they the funniest people I've ever heard in my life? Why isn't this show more popular? That kind of thing. Yeah. Just just so I'm just spitballing some ideas to get you started. So you will hear from us again in two weeks and we will bring you some more Unsolved Mysteries content. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye.